Count the cost. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. What does it cost to be a disciple of Christ? Now that question may seem a little strange to you. We believe the invitation to follow Jesus is open and free to anyone who will accept it. Reread in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then Romans 10, verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that what we need? Just have faith in Christ? You receive your golden ticket to heaven or you receive your fire insurance and you come and you confess and you repent and you follow in obedience to baptism and that's it that's all you have to do well Jesus sets a much higher standard to become his disciple and in our text this morning he talks about and explains the cost of true discipleship now let's put it in context Jesus has been teaching parables about the kingdom and great crowds are following him now this is not uncommon because Jesus would draw large crowds whenever he began to talk and do ministry among the people see a lot of people will follow Jesus for a while a lot of people will become part of his church for just a while until something happens or becomes too inconvenient or becomes too costly for them and then they'll walk away remember 9-11 the churches were filled there was a sense of brotherly love in our streets of some of our major cities and yet just a few days after things went back to the way they were it's not the large number of people who will follow Jesus for just a little while. Rather, it's the small group, the small committed group who remains. So I ask you this morning, which one are you? Do you just follow when it's convenient? Or are you committed in your walk with Christ? Look at verse 25 tells us that large or many crowds, or some translations will put that, multitudes were going along with them. They were traveling with them. Now, can you imagine working out in the field, and you look up, you see this cloud of dust from the road on the distant horizon, and you start to hear people's voices. You can't make out what they're saying, but you can hear this distant buzz, and this whole commotion going on. Would it take much for you to just say, hey, I'm going to go find out what's going on. It won't take much to persuade you to do that. So as you go to see what's going on, the question becomes that once you get close enough to see who it was and to hear Jesus and to realize who this must be in listening to his teaching, 
Would you just kind of go back to work after you heard the things we just read about just a few moments ago? Would you just kind of mosey on back or do your work? Or would you leave everything and follow him? Look what he says as he turns to the crowd. If anyone comes to me, this is verse 26, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus will cost you relationships. Perhaps even your own life. When he says, if anyone comes to me, that is someone seeking salvation, someone make a commitment or a decision to follow Christ. Did you catch the word that really throws people for the loop when you hear this passage? If anyone comes to me and does not hate. Wait a second. I thought God was a God of love. We are to love each other, love our neighbor as ourselves, even pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. What's this mean? Well, Jesus is using a somatic idiom. Now, an idiom is a phrase that has a meaning, but if you took each individual word out of that, it would never mean what it says it means in an idiom. For example, I bought a new car from the Ford dealership, and it's a limit. Now, you know I'm not saying it's actually a lemon. I'm communicating that it's a piece of junk. It's, it's trash. It doesn't work properly. I paid all this money for a new car. You know, it's very hard for people learning English the first time to figure out all the idioms because if you stop and think about it, we have a lot of idioms that we say to each other. We don't explain it because we know what the meaning is. But for someone learning language for the first time, it can be very hard. But he's not just using an idiom, he's using a semantic idiom, which has a, it's an idiom that has a Hebrew influence. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now we realize there's no eyeballs in your heart, but what's he communicating? I want your heart to be open. I want it to be soft. I want to be able to speak life into it. I want you to be enlightened by the truth. So he's using a Hebrew idiom, a, a Semitic, Semitic Hebrew idiom. In Old Testament language, loving one and hitting another. It, it means you love somebody far beyond anybody else. So we can learn this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus says, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So we are to love Christ first and foremost above anybody or anything else. If we love anything or anybody more than Christ, we are committing adultery. Because he desires, and quite frankly, he belongs to be first in our lives. And I would also argue that a person who really commits his life to following Christ will develop even a greater love for family and for his neighbors. Now here's the rub. When you're that sold out and committed to Christ, it may seem like rejection to other people around you who do not have the same commitment to Christ. They won't understand it. That's why the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked. 
Because when you're not committed to Christ, you love him above everything else, it's going to cause tension. You've got to have that same commitment. He has to come first. Verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after or follow me. Now, when the Roman Empire crucified somebody, either a, a criminal or a captive, the victim was, also, was often forced to carry his own cross part of the way to the crucifixion site through the public streets. It was a form of admission. Now, they wouldn't come out and fully admit it to him as they're walking in the streets. But basically, it would be the, the person who's condemned to die is telling everybody, I was wrong, and, the Roman, and, and Rome was right. I deserve to die. And on that side you would have was your name and what you did. You're basically walking through the streets saying, everybody, I deserve this. And it wouldn't be the most straightforward way to go. They'd walk you through the most crowded streets before you got to the execution site. So when Jesus commands us to carry our own cross and follow him, he's referring to a public display before others that Jesus is right. In other words, when people look at me, it's obvious that Jesus is number one in my life, that he comes before even my wife and my children. Disciples are following him even to his death. You know, when he talks about carrying the cross, it means that the disciple must be willing to deny himself or himself and accept suffering. When I preach, I have to die to myself and know that he might be raised up. It's a vivid illustration of one hating his own life, carrying that cross, a dying to self. Or as John put it in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. That's when John was asking if Jesus was the Messiah, and he gets words back from his disciples, yes, it's he. And John realized in that moment, the Christ has to be up and lifted high. I must decrease. To carry your own cross means to fully put your trust, your faith, and your hope in God. Amid the storms and the battles that you go through, even though in a difficult situation, or a painful situation, you always trust God, and yet God is with you through the midst of your suffering. Where in the Bible does it tell me if I'm a follower of Christ, I'm going to be wealthy and healthy? I don't find that in here. I find the exact opposite. Jesus says, remember, when they, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They hated me, they will hate you. Now, this world is not my home. This is not the end goal. You realize that. We're headed for a much, the word better is not, doesn't really describe a better place. It's much far beyond we could ever imagine. And then he gives us two illustrations of what he's talking about. Look at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first down and calculate the cost? No one starts to build something before they find out they have enough to finish it. Look at verse 29 and 30. Otherwise, when you, he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule, mock, or make fun of him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
He don't want to start building something and find out, hey, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough resources, whatever it may be. Who wants to do that? Because you look foolish, right? That's common sense. If any of you go make, if you go get a loan or that you're going to build a house, you're going to sit down and look at your financial situation. If you don't, you're not being very smart about things. You need to sit down and figure stuff out. We have a budget in our house. We see what was coming in. We budget everything out accordingly. And here's the rub. Likewise, one must consider carefully what it means to become a Christian. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about after salvation, after justification, the process of sanctification. I think for so long people understood just walk the aisle, say a little prayer, get dunked the baptism, you're fine. That's it. No, that's just the beginning. That becomes the beginning of a lifelong journey of walking with Christ, becoming more like Christ every day. See, before you become a disciple of Christ, you need to consider a cost that's involved. And are you willing to pay it? You must be willing to follow Christ's commands. You must be willing to put Christ first in your life, and you must be willing to follow through with your commitment. I'm so happy that Christian teaches me that he who began a good work in me will finish it. He will complete it. He can do it. But you have to be committed to it. You have to give it over. He's not going to force his way in. It's amazing to me when I... See, that. Get my thoughts together. We like to be in control, don't we? We want control of everything. We don't want to let go and let him call the shots. If I'm trusting him for my salvation and trusting in his forgiveness and his mercy, why don't I trust God for hmm, where I attend the local body of church? Why don't I trust him when it calls to my calling of being a preacher or a pastor? Why don't I trust him when I raised my kids, and the Bible teaches me, if you raise them, they will not depart from it. And some of the hardest thing I had to do was watch some of my girls go off and not do exactly what I thought they should do. But I have to trust them. I have to trust them. See, being a Christian is not a part-time deal. It's not a hobby that you can just pick up and lay back down again. It's a full-time, 24-7 commitment to do the will of God and that nothing will get in your way with your walk with Christ. Then in verse 31, he gives another illustration. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first down and consider or decide whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. This seems to be kind of self-explanatory, doesn't it? I mean, before a king goes to battle, he's going to stop and think, do I have enough soldiers? Do I have what it takes to achieve a victory? If he finds out or decides he doesn't enough men or what it takes to achieve victory, look, it says in verse 32, or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and acts terms for peace. He goes out and makes peace before it happens. Why fight a battle if you're going to lose and all your soldiers are going to be killed and you, and you lose the battle? And then verse 33, he goes back to where he almost started in this. He says, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Anyone 
who values possessions more than people, holding on to their possessions while not meeting needs is not being a disciple of Christ. Everything you have financially, the capacity to think, your thinking skills, every skill, talent, resource you have has been given to you for one reason and one reason only. That is to build the kingdom of God. That's why the Bible tells us to seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. I did this and I did that. I did this. Look what I No, I didn't do anything. God is the one who allowed me to do it. Who gave us the ability to think and to read and to reason? Who gave us his word so we could read and pick it up? That's all God. Well, I planted a garden. Yeah, but who lets it rain on that garden? It lets the grass and the, uh, the plants grow. Who does all that? That's God. It seems to me that mankind in general, we've become very arrogant and prideful on our ability to do this or that. And then when things go wrong, what do we do? Oh, God, where were you at? You know what he says? I've been right here the whole time, Tim, but you didn't want me around. You wouldn't listen to me. And dearly beloved, that's the times in my life I, I, I see where I really messed up is the point where I said, God, I got this. I don't need you. You know, and I mean that come out and say that constantly, but subconsciously the way I act goes back to, do I really love him? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your might, with all your strength, with all your... You know, it's even true of a church. If we hold on to what we have and not do anything and not meeting needs and doing ministry, then we're not being the true body of Christ, are we? All three of these examples, the relationships, talking about loving him above everyone else, the building the tower, and the king going to war, all of these have the same themes. Deliberation, choosing wisely, and finishing well. The journey of faith with Jesus requires the cost being counted daily and not to give up, but to focus on what matters for success. It's going to cost you. If you were on the uh, our website, you may have saw this illustration, and I'm just going to paraphrase. When you Make a reservation for a vacation. All right? You make a reservation for an airline, or how are you going to get there if you're going to take a car? So anyway, you make the reservation, the place that you're going, a hotel, wherever you're going to stay, and then you sit back and say, okay, how are we going to get there? I mean, this whole process, right? We just don't go, we just don't go on a whim, do we? Well, sometimes we might. Depending on where you're going, Tammy and I are going to take a trip this June. She's already made a reservation for the... Uh, bed and breakfast and we're looking at the flights to see if we can get there non-rev there and she's looking at the turds and we're doing all this stuff so my point being when we make a vacation we make a reservation we do all this prep work we sometimes even make a to-do list and we walk down what we need to do how long are we going to be gone do we need someone to come up and and get the mail do we need the post office to hold the mail do we need someone to come up and watch the animals take care of the cows wherever it may be you're going through this list in your mind you might not write it out but you see my point 
And when you do that, you're putting things in perspective. Why? So you can be mo have the most successful time of your vacation. You took care of everything. And when everything's taken care of, you have a better time of vacation, right? Jesus asks us to follow him with the same amount of intentionality. Be intentional about it. Don't just wake up one day, woohoo, I'm going to, no. Let me tell you, if you wait for something to happen, it ain't going to happen by accident. You have to be intent and purpose, follow Christ. It's not going to happen by itself. Because the flesh is going to wage against the spirit. You have to be intentional about it. Like we said when we started out, a lot of people will follow Christ for a while. They'll follow Christ. A lot of people even be part of the body of the church until something happens that's inconvenient, perhaps may get their feelings hurt, or it just becomes too costly for them. I can't do this Christian thing anymore. To do, to do a sports analogy, and all analogies do fall apart to some degree, it's, 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 like, it's, it's like football. These NFL teams spend all week long looking at the team they're going to play. They look at their offense, they look at the defense, they look at the different players. Who's in this play? Who's in that play? Who, can, who do we have that can go against that guy? And they look at all the strategy all week long. And so they come up with some plays. The offensive coordinator, here's a list of plays I think will get us success in, in beating this team. But see, they can have those meetings all day long. They can talk about it all day long. It doesn't mean a thing until those guys get up and stand on the land of scrimmage and you have your opponent daring you to do what you just talked all week about doing. doesn't mean a thing until they actually pull it off. Let me tell you, we come into church. Let me back that up. We don't come to church. We are the church. We gather together. We talk about the great things of God. It is well with my soul. Amazing grace and all these wonderful things. And that's wonderful. We should do that. But we have an enemy right outside those doors. Let me back that up. He may be right here among us now, trying to influence you, trying to persuade you not to follow through what God's telling you to do. We can talk about it all day long until we're blue in the face, but until we put it into action, it doesn't mean a thing. I mean, look at our government for Pete's sake. They talk all this wonderful stuff, but they never do anything. What is God calling you to do? Do you love him above everything else in your life? Even to deny yourself. Say, God, it's not what Tim wants. Though how I spend my time, to where I spend my money, to what I watch, what I do, that all is now controlled by you, God. You tell me. And we serve a very gracious God. He leads us with very gentle hands, doesn't he? Perhaps you've never given your life to Christ. Now is the time. Perhaps there's something that's come in between you and God that's keeping you from following him. Or let's just cut to the chase. Are you fully committed? And I'm in with this. 
when I think of being fully committed, I remember back to my seminary days. I mean, I'm able to sit under some great men and women of God. Teach. Not only from God's word, but also teach from their experience of what they did on the mission field. This experience, it was this wonderful time. Heard some excellent preaching and chapel service. And then God hit me with this one day. He said, Tim, this is great, but all you fully committed to the point if seminary goes away, all your professors walk away from the faith. Even your own family members walk away. Everybody else completely walks away and denounces my son. Will you remain faithful? I said, yes, but I cannot do it without you. That what we're talking about, being fully committed. Because it's, starting, it's already starting to happen in our country. Things are changing. There is a storm brewing. And you need to decide right here and right now which group do you belong to, the committed, dedicated group to Christ or the fair weather ones, depending on which way the wind blows. When persecution hits, there's only three things that happen. People walk away from the faith, denounce Christ. Number two, people compromise their faith. Or number three, their faith grows stronger. I want to be part of that third group. No offense, but even if all of you walked away, I said, I don't want to become here no more, but I have to remain committed to my Lord. Because honestly, he deserves it. Amen. For what he has done and currently doing in my life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Jesus, you're not asking us to do anything that you haven't done yourself. You laid all the privileges aside of being deity. You, you laid it all of the side. You took on human flesh, stepped out of heaven, and became a servant, teaching and ministering to us, and even to the point of laying your life down. You didn't deserve it. You had to commit a no sin, but yet you laid your life down for us. For me. We thank you for it. We pray that our lives as individuals, as a church, will be reflective of the love that we have for you. We love you because you first loved us. May your spirit continue to move and speak to our hearts. And may we respond in obedience. In Christ's name we pray.